The last two Sundays we have been speaking to you from the life of Elijah and Elisha brought to our attention in Luke chapter 4 by the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I'd like to go to the book of 2 Kings for another uh, time in the life of Elisha and uh, see the events that unfolded beginning in the last part of 2 Kings 6 and then 2 Kings 7. Now the Lord's church is a New Testament church. We live in New Testament times. We are governed by the teachings of the New Testament. Uh, Paul wrote nine letters to seven churches, and those nine letters give us guidance and direction as a church body concerning our belief and our practice and how we're to worship and how we're to carry out things uh, in the sight of the Lord as he tells us to do all things decently and in order. But the Old Testament is important, and Romans 15, 4 tells us why. It says the things written aforetime, which is the Old Testament writings, uh, things written aforetime was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The expression patience and comfort, comfort means endurance and encouragement. We need encouragement. We receive encouragement by studying the lessons in the Old Testament. We receive the inspiration we need to endure by studying the lessons from the Old Testament. Some things never change, even though we live in a changing world. There are some things that remain constant. Human nature is the same today as it was after Adam transgressed God's law. There's never been a, a time in man's history that human nature has not been the same in all persons. Sin is still sin today as it was sin back then. That has never changed. You can give it all kind of new names you want to, but sin is sin. And then God himself is the same. God has not changed. Uh, God is a God of purpose. He's a God that exercises his uh, good pleasure. Uh, God has not changed. His word hadn't changed. His purpose hadn't changed. His good pleasure has not changed. So that's why we can study the lives of people in the Old Testament and benefit today see how they handle certain things. Now, as we go to the book of Second Kings chapter 6 and verse 24, it begins like this. And it came to pass after this that Benadad, king of Syria, gathered all of his host and went up and besieged Samaria. Now, if you've been reading carefully, going back a couple of chapters and up till now, this may seem like a contradiction, but it's not. Notice the verse before it in verse 23. And he prepared great provision for them, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to the master. And he's talking about the Syrians here. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Notice the expression, the bands of Syria came no longer to the land of Israel. In other words, this was not the entire army. It was not the entire army. Uh, we find, going back to 2 Kings uh, chapter 5, concerning Naaman the leper, that there was a little maid in the camp of Naaman uh, who was going to minister to his wife. And we find that the Bible says that certain groups had gone into the land of Israel and had brought her out of there. Again, we're not looking at the entire army of Syria. We're looking at bands. We're looking at small um, groups of soldiers who uh, invaded there and just went in and made a hit and came out. And that's how come they had the little maid. But now we have where Benadad, the king of Syria, and as you read the scriptures of the Old Testament, you'll find there's a Benadad one, a Benadad two, and a Benadad three. 
We're looking at a bit of that too. There was also a title uh, that was given to the kings of Damascus, which was the capital city of Syria. Just like Pharaoh, um, there were a number of Pharaohs, there were a number of Caesars. Now they had names to identify them, distinguish them. But Benadad is a, a title, again, that the kings of Syria and the city of Damascus carried. But this is Benadad number two. As we study Israel's history, we find there was interaction between Israel and Syria on a number of occasions. Benadad is the current king of Syria. And as we take a look at his life, just going back a couple of chapters, we begin to see the lack of character uh, that is in this man. Uh, Benadad was a very ungrateful and unthankful individual. You go back to the fifth chapter when we look to the story of Naaman, his commander-in-chief, Naaman, who was a great man in the Syrian army, great in the sight of the king. And remember, we went, looked at several things said about him. He was an honorable man, a man of valor, etc. But he had leprosy. And this will come into the picture in today's story, uh, leprosy once again. We were in detail last weekend to teach you how that leprosy is a picture and a type of sin in many different ways. He had leprosy, which was an incurable disease. But that little maid had a message. And that little maid told Naaman's wife, and Naaman's wife told Naaman, and Naaman told the king what the message of the little maid was. And the message was this, Oh, that my Lord, talking about Naaman, was in the land of Israel, for there's a man of God over there that would cure him of his leprosy. We find Benadad, the king of Syria, is going to send Naaman over with a letter to the king of Israel as to why he's coming over there and he sent him over there so he will be cured. Well, as the story continues and we saw, the Lord did show his mercy and grace and he cured Naaman of his leprosy. Well, why would the king now invade or come and compass about the city of Samaria when the God of Israel had blessed his servant that he thought so highly of to be cleansed of his leprosy? Certainly no gratefulness or thankfulness is seen. We come over to the sixth chapter, and you're going to find where the king, once again, sent bands down to get the king, or get Elisha the prophet, and the king, excuse me, the king of Israel. But Elisha the prophet is telling the king of Israel where the king of Syria has set up an ambush, where the king of Syria has set a trap. And so time and time again, we find where the king of Israel escapes because God is revealing where the king of Syria is through his prophet Elisha. We find, finally, that the army of Syria is struck with blindness because Elisha prayed that God would close their eyes and blind their eyes, and God did. And then he led them out and led them back to where they came from. The king of Israel wanted to slay them. But Elisha says, no, we're not doing that. So as we're taking them back to where they came from, they could have done that because that's what they wanted to do to Israel. But Elisha, the prophet, leads them back to where they came from. And then he prayed the Lord might open their eyes. And the Lord answered that prayer and he opened their eyes. His army, the king's army here, that portion of the army could have been slain but was not. They were released back to where they came from. That's when we come to 2 Kings 6.23, which says, For the bands of Syria came more to the coast of Syria from that day. Why is this king now wanting to 
wage war against Israel. He has benefited on two occasions concerning the God of Israel who has displayed his power and his might and his grace in a way that benefited Syria and the king of Syria. But the king is not thankful. The king is not grateful. It's like he totally ignored that. And now the king is going to besiege the city of Samaria, and Samaria is the capital city of the nation of Israel. Remember this time you got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom is Israel, and there's capital city of Samaria. The southern kingdom is Judah, and the capital city is Jerusalem. So we're looking up here in Samaria among the Israelites, and their king is King Jehoram. The king Jehoram also is a very unthankful man. Very ungrateful man. He's the king of, uh, I mean, excuse me, he's the son of Ahab, the most wicked king that Israel ever had. They, uh, every king they had was wicked. They did not have a single good king in their history that is up here in Israel. Judah did, but Israel did not. And we're going to find that he, again, is the son of Ahab. You remember Ahab and Jezebel. And we see how the Lord has blessed him in spite of who he is. As we go back to 2 Kings chapter 5, when Naaman is sent there with that letter from the king of Syria concerning his leprosy, the king reads the letter and the king goes into great distress mode because he knows he does not have the power to heal anybody of leprosy. Why did he not think about Elisha? He'd already experienced a miracle with Elisha when he and the king of Judah and the king of Moab had approached him earlier in chapter 3. We mentioned this last weekend. And they come before him, and Elisha says, it were not for the king Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even acknowledge you're here, talking about King Jehoram of Israel. He's been nevertheless, he says, you go dig these ditches. And he says, even though it will not rain, these ditches shall be filled with water. Then you and your men and your beasts can drink water out of these ditches, and on top of that, God's going to deliver uh, the, the Moabites into your hands. It all came to pass exactly like Elisha the prophet said. Why had not the king remembered that? Why did he not remember that? Why he had not remembered how Elisha had given him inside information? <laughs> inside information. Where did Elisha get this inside information? He got directly from heaven. He got directly from God. God's revealing his secret to his prophets. And Elisha warned him, not once, not twice, but multiple times of an ambush the king of Syria had set up for the king of Israel. Had he not warned him, the king of Israel would have been ambushed and trapped and taken into captivity, but he escaped and was delivered because God sent a message through Elisha, his prophet, to warn the king. Why had he not remembered that? Why had he not remembered that? See, King Jehoram is just as wicked as King Benadad. There's no difference. They're both ungodly men, did ungodly things. Uh, King Jehoram led Israel into acts of gross idolatry. They're both ungrateful and they're both very much unthankful. So now we come to 2 Kings 6.24. And we read again where King Benadad, the king of Syria, went up with all his hosts. Now it's not just companies here. It's not just several bands of men, but it's an entire host. You got the entire army together, and they go up and besiege Samaria, the capital city of Israel. 
We notice in verse 25, there was a great famine in Samaria. If you read in the 105th Psalm, you're going to find where God has, can, and has commanded famines. Famines are an interesting study in the scripture. First famine we read about takes place in the life of Abraham. Since that's not my subject this morning, maybe later, but it's not my subject this morning, uh, what I want to take, uh, what I want you to think about as you study different famines is how people reacted to them. And I'll just give you this. What did Abraham do? When a famine came to the land of Canaan, where God had brought him down into, he left there and went down into Egypt. Got in a lot of trouble down there, didn't he? He should have stayed there and weathered the storm, so to speak, because at least he was where God had put him. Things aren't always going to be rosy in your life. I'm sure I've not said something astounding right there. Uh, things aren't always going to be mountaintop experiences in your life, individually, as families, or in even the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be some low, low times, some family experiences go along with mountaintop experiences. If it's my choice, I'd live on top of the mountain. I'd be here all the time. But it's been my lot, probably spend more time down in the valley than it has been on top of the mountain. All right, so we find here where he's besieged the city of Samaria, and Samaria's experienced a great famine. As we read this, you're going to notice the Syrians are not experiencing a famine. So while the Syrians are not experiencing a famine, and Israel, Samaria, is going through a great famine, why is that the case? They both live relatively close together, geographically. Why is that the case? Because the 105th Psalm, it says God has commanded, uh, uh, commanded the famine. God has sent a famine oftentimes as part of his judgment. In fact, if you read in the book of Jeremiah, you'll find there were three different types of judgments God used on his people, and it's repeated multiple times in the book of Jeremiah. There was uh, pestilence was one of them. The sword was another one, and famine was the other one. The sword, the enemy, pestilence, destroy the crops, and famine is the third one. What's the, what's the worst kind of famine that it can be? The worst kind of famine is given to us in the book of Amos. Chapter uh, 8, I believe it is, but in the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, God says, I will send a famine, not of bread and water, but a famine of the word of God. There's a famine that's not mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 17, people overlook. That's when Elijah prayed to God, it wouldn't rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. Obviously, a great famine. In fact, in the very next chapter, it says there was a great famine in the land. If it don't rain for three and a half years, I can assure you, you're going to experience a famine. What other kind of famine went forth there in three and a half years? It was a famine of the Word of God, wasn't it? Elijah was a man of God, but Elijah was hid from King Ahab during that period of time. So for three and a half years, not only did Israel go through a famine of bread and water, but Israel went through a famine of not hearing the words of God come through his prophet Elijah. That's the worst famine as far as I'm concerned that there can be a famine of the word of God. And uh, we're experiencing a, a great degree of famine, I believe, in the world, especially in America today, concerning this. Hopefully not here at Bethel. But nevertheless, we find there's a great famine in Samaria. It is so bad that an ass's head is being sold for 80 pieces of silver. Who would pay 80 pieces of silver for the, an ass's head? You would if you had 80 pieces of silver nothing to eat. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was sold for five pieces of silver. And if you want to know what that is, ask me after church and I'll whisper it in your ear. 
okay? Who would buy something like that? You would if there's nothing else to eat and you had five pieces of silver. The king comes walking, King Jehoram, comes walking by the wall of the city and there's a woman on top of the wall. She cries out to him. To begin with, he basically ignores her. Notice his language. Just to, again, show you what kind of king it was. She said, help my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord do not help thee, which shall I help thee? I can just hear him saying it now, just like that. If the Lord do not help thee, which shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor, out of the wine press? There's nothing in the barn floor. There's nothing in the wine press. He's saying it sarcastically. And the king said unto her, what aileth thee? And now he is going to go ahead and say, okay, what's your problem? Her problem is this, her and another woman entered into an agreement that one day they would boil her son and eat him, and the next day they'd boil her son and eat him. In other words, cannibalism is taking place in the city. Hard to imagine, isn't it? That's hard to imagine how that hunger could overcome affection. That's exactly what's taking place. This king is so distraught upon this news, so distressed. You, you would think maybe he would go to the Lord in prayer, but you find no record of prayer of Israel in this condition. No record here. You would think maybe he would do that. He's seen, I've already named you two miracles that he's seen that come from the hand of God through the prophet Elisha, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he's going to place some blame on the prophet himself. Notice. And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the woman that he rent his clothes. I mean, he tore his clothes. And he passed by upon the wall that the people looked. Behold, he had sackcloth within upon his own flesh. Now, generally speaking, when somebody uh, tore their clothes and sat down in sackcloth and ashes, it was symbolic of their grief or of their repentance. This king has shown no repentance. He has led them into gross idolatry. He's not turning from idolatry. He's just so distressed about the situation. That's the only reason he's done that. And here's what he says. Then he said, Go, God do so and more also to me at the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. Why blame Elisha? Remember who Elisha succeeded? It was Elijah. And you remember when Elijah announced the famine... You know, it would not rain, come rain nor dew these years, but according to my word in 1 Kings 17, the Lord hides Elijah. He sends Elijah to, first of all, to the brook. Then he sends Elijah to the widow woman. And then in the next chapter here, he tells Elijah, first of all, he tells him to hide himself, which he does. Now he tells him to show himself, and Elijah does. And Elijah and Ahab meet face to face, and here's the words of Ahab. Art not thou he that troubleth Israel? Ahab's the one that troubled Israel. Ahab was that wicked king. Ahab's the one who led them in immorality and idolatry. And that's the reason three and a half years of famine has come upon them. But when he sees Elijah, he said, Art he that troubleth Israel? He didn't like Elijah because Elijah told the truth. You know, you can get people to dislike you in a hurry by just telling them the truth. You can. They don't want to hear it. You know, I've heard people say, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> don't confuse me with the facts. 
People don't like facts. People don't like truth at times. As I said, the truth can hurt. It can, but I tell you what, the truth brings freedom and liberty, and you need to know the truth rather than not the truth. Or he that troubleth Israel, the messenger of God, historically, have been people that people place blame on. When people get slack in church, when they eventually quit, oftentimes, you know why they say that? Well, the preacher just doesn't preach like he used to. I'm just not getting fed in the house of God anymore. They don't take a look inwardly at their own self. They blame the preacher. The preacher's the number one excuse, my friends, when people do that. True or not true, he's the number one excuse. I didn't like what he preached. He didn't shake my hand the other day. I mean, I walked past him. He had a frown on his face. I know it was meant for me. That's the way it goes. Elijah gets to blame. Elisha gets to blame. Neither one of them were to blame. But King Benahad is so stressed out, he's got to blame somebody, right? You know, one blessing of having children is you always got someone around to blame. <laughs> Where's the remote control? I know you lost it. And when the children are gone, who are you going to blame then? There's only two people left. And Karen sometimes Karen says, well, why do you blame me? I said, well, there's nobody else around here. <laughs> but I often think about when the Lord told his disciples, that one of you shall betray me. A wonderful lesson in this. Everyone, every single one of them spoke up and said, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Now, if we had that attitude, we'd have happier homes, happier marriages, happier churches. Because problems are going to exist. Where you got people, you got problems. And the more people you got, the more problems you're going to have. You say, is it I, Lord? That solved a lot of issues. Is it I? Even Judas Iscariot, when he got down to him, he was the last one. But after everybody else had asked the question, he kind of stood out if he didn't ask it, wouldn't he? And the rest of them said, Lord, is it I? But when he came to Judas, he didn't call him Lord. He called him Master. That was respectful, but it's not the same as Lord. Master, is it I? It wasn't Elijah's fault. It was Ahab's fault. It wasn't Elisha's fault. It was, ben uh, it was Jehoram's fault. That's who it was. So Elisha sat in his house, and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him, but ere the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See, you have this son of a murderer has sent to take away mine head. This is Elisha talking. Look, when the messenger cometh, shut the door and hold him fast at the door, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. How did Elisha know this? Because he's the man of God, and God is showing it to him. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger came down unto him, and he said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. What should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now this, you got to, to be careful right here to determine who's actually saying this. I believe it's King Benadad that is saying this. And now Elisha is going to make a prophetic statement. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. This is not going to be Elisha's opinion. This is not going to be Elisha speculating. This is not going to be the imagination of Elisha. Makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? 
Romans chapter 3, verse 3 says, Let God be true and every man a liar. Hear ye the word of the Lord. What I'm about to tell you is not my word. What I'm about to tell you is God's word. Hear ye the word of the Lord. Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel. And two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. He says within 24 hours, currently that which is of no value is sold for 80 pieces of silver or five pieces of silver. But within 24 hours, something very valuable will be sold for something very cheap. Very small amount of money. How in the world is that going to happen? It's a, a miracle statement, isn't it? How could that possibly be the case in 24 hours? How could things turn around and change in 24 hours in the complete opposite? We're about to find out. Then a lord, that is an officer, on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be? He said it very sarcastically. If, if God opened up windows in heaven, could you have such a turnaround as this? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. Elisha makes a prophetic statement about the end of this man here who expressed such unbelief in what Elisha just said. And then we find four individuals coming into the picture. And there were four leprous men at the inner end of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? Remember the lessons on leprosy. These are not four ordinary men. These are not four very important men. That is the eyes of men, the important eyes of the Lord. These are not four, four significant men. These are four leprous men who are sitting in the gate. They're not allowed in the city. They're not allowed in the city. They're outcasts. God's going to use four outcasts. God's going to use four people who've been banished from society because they're lepers. He's going to use these four men. Of all the men that could be used, no one would have ever chosen four leprous men, but God did. Four leprous men. And so they speak to each other. They said, why should we sit here and die? If we say we'll enter into the city, then the famine's in the city and we'll die there. If we sit still here, we die also. We die here, we die there. Now therefore, come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live. If they kill us, we shall but die. Their only hope of staying alive is to go to the camp of the enemy, the camp of the Syrians. If we stay here, we die. If we go into the city, we die. If we go to the host of the Syrians and they kill us, we're going to die anyway. But maybe, just maybe, they'll let us live. And they rose up in the twilight, just about the time the sun was setting. They rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians. And when they were coming to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. What a shock! No man there. Where are the Syrians at? Where's the army at? No man is there. You know, I, I really like studying the doctrine of no man in the Bible. 
You know, like John 6, 44, the Lord said, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. And I'll raise him up again at the last day. Aren't you glad there's an exception in that verse? No man can come to me except. How is somebody going to come to the Lord? Let's see what the exception is. And every one of you here to this day, you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you love him because this exception applied to you. No man can come to me except the Lord, the Father which sent me, draw him. And I'll raise him up again at the last day. That's the only way anybody can ever come to the Lord. They're drawn to the Lord by the power of God. I love that no man. I love the no man when the disciples went on top of the mountain of transfiguration. And there Jesus Christ appeared in the midst of Elijah on one hand and Moses on the other. And when they were there, the apostle Peter speaks up and said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And a voice rang out from heaven saying, This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Hear ye him. And they all fell down to the ground. But when they looked up, the Bible says they saw no man. (laughs) They saw no man. So when you leave here today, and each and every time you leave here, I hope that you're focused on what was preached. And when you leave here and you're focusing on that, you're going to focus on the Lord, and you're going to see no man. You're not even going to see me. All right? I don't want you to see me. I want you to see me right now. Uh, In the message, I don't want you to see me. I want you to see the Lord. You see, they saw no man. Oh, I'd be tempted to run that rabbit for a little while, but we'll let him go today. He'll still be around next trip. (laughs) No man was there. And then we're told why. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots, a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. Where have we read this before? Where have we read about chariots and horses and a great host before? In the previous chapter, whenever, as I've already mentioned here, we find where the king of Syria was trying to ambush the king of Israel, and the king of Israel was spared because God was using Elisha to tell him all about it. And Elisha had a servant, and the servant looked out there and saw a great host of the enemy, he saw horses and chariots. He comes to Elijah, Elisha, tells him that. And Elisha said, Fear not. There's more with us than be with them. What do you think the servant thought? He could count. (laughs) Numerically, that wasn't true. Numerically, there was not more of Israel than it was the enemy there. But you see, Elisha was counting on the Lord making the majority. When the Lord's on your side, you become the majority. Do you see that? Understand that? Regardless how great the enemy is, and no more power or authority when God's on your side... You have the majority. So he just prayed for the servant that the Lord opened the eyes of the servant. And the eyes of the servant opened up and he looked and he saw an army. He saw horses and chariots of fire. Now, when he saw the enemy, he saw horses and chariots. When he saw God's army, it was horses and chariots of fire. That made the difference. And these horses and chariots of fire surrounded. Elisha the prophet. For the enemy to get to Elisha, they had to come through God's army. You think that's going to work? For them to get Elisha, they got to come through God. You ever heard somebody say, well, if you're going to get to him, you got to come through me. And then sometimes they go right through him. 
But I'm telling you here, for the enemy to cut Elisha, they got to come through the army that God has sent that surrounds Elisha. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. So now God has made the Syrians to hear the noise. See, what did they do back here in chapter 6? They had their eyes open up where they saw the army of God, but here their ear is open to where they hear the army of God. Proverbs 20 and 12 says, The hearing ear and the seeing eye, even God has made both of them. When you read that statement, you might think that's an odd statement. What does the eye do but see? What does the ear do but hear, right? In the creation of God, God gave us two of these, and two of these, and thank God, one of these. That's all we need, isn't it? If we had two of these, we'd just get in twice as much trouble. <laughs> That's what good a second tongue would do you. But God give us natural eyes to see and naturally is to hear. But there's more to it than that. God has given us the hearing ear. God has given us the seeing eye. How often the Lord closed, off his, closed out his messages in the New Testament. David said, let him that have ears to hear, let him hear. He was talking about hearing that comes through a spiritual application, you see. So God made them hear this noise. There's, there's nothing here that says they actually saw the army. Then it says they saw the chariots, they saw the horses, saw the great host, but they heard it as it was. Here's the angelic army of God making this noise. The eyes don't see it, but the ears hear it. And here's their response. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel hath hired against us the kings of the Hittites, the king of the Egyptians to come upon us. And that was their response to it. That was their explanation of it. The king of Israel has hired these other two nations to send their armies, and that's what we're hearing. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for the life. They didn't take time to pack anything. They didn't have time to pack anything. It's like a fire erupts and, you know, takes place in the house. Don't take time to get your groceries out of there. Don't take time to gather your clothes out. Just get out of there, right? <laughs> so they didn't take anything, but they fled for their lives because they heard something that God gave them in a supernatural occurrence. And when these lepers came into the uttermost part of the camp, they went into one tent and did eat and drink and carried tent silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again into another tent and carried tents also went and hid it. Now, you can just picture this. You can see these leprous men hadn't had anything to eat in a long time and they go into the camp of the Syrians, or the, yeah, the Syrians rather, and there's no people there, no man is there, but there's food there, there's clothes there, there's gold there, there's silver there. Don't sound like there was any famine concerning the Syrians, right? As I mentioned earlier, no famine at all. And they found an abundance of all these things they've been lacking, didn't have any for a good while. And they just began eating and hiding but then they paused and thought. Then they said one to another, We do not well. This is a day, well, this day is a day of good tidings. We hold our peace. If we tarry to the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. This is good news. 
This is good tidings. They said, we, we don't need to keep this to ourselves. We've been blessed. We need to let other people know about it. You know, the expression that we find here, this day is a day of good tidings, is found in several other places of the Bible. We find it over here in Isaiah 52, 7. When the prophet Isaiah said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him. We notice here it's him, H-R-M. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. That bringeth good tidings, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. If that's not the gospel message, my friends, I know nothing about it. Notice here what he goes on to say. He says, for they shall see for the watchmen, M-E-N. Very important point here. For the watchmen, M-E-N, shall lift up the voice, T-H-E. Why did it not say, for the watchmen shall lift up their voice? It says, the watchmen lift up the voice, for with the voice shall they Sing, for they shall see eye to eye. See the unity here? See the oneness here? See the consistency here? That's a picture, my friends, what happens in the Lord's kingdom, in the Lord's church here in the New Testament day. Wherever you go across America, and now in the Philippines, and in Africa, wherever, and you attend a primitive Baptist church, you know what you can expect to hear? Sovereign grace preach. I can tell you that now. You can expect to hear those men preach exactly what you hear preached at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church. These two men coming this week, I can assure you, if God blesses them, you'll not hear one word come from their mouth to contradict what you hear here on a weekly basis. That's an identifying mark of the Lord's true church on this earth right here. The watchmen, M-E-N, shall lift up the voice. It's like it's just one man speaking, but it's not. It's multiple men speaking, but they're speaking in unity and oneness, just like it was just one man bringing the message. They shall see eye to eye. Did you know there are many people, many men today, graduating from seminaries who do not even believe the virgin birth? They don't. I have never taken one Bible course in my life. I do not have a seminary degree. I do not have a degree from some Bible college. I've never taken one religious course, one Bible course in my life. So I consider that to be my advantage. <laughs> okay. I consider that to be my advantage. Whenever uh, I was first communicating with Brother Jerry Smith in England, he was giving me some of his history, some of his experiences. He said, the men that I used to go around toting their Bible for them have all passed away and gone into heaven. He said, but uh, I, I look to you as my mentor. <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I hope that's not <laughs> telling me I'm ready to go on to glory too quick. But anyway. <laughs> and he told me that he had never been to any kind of religious school. I texted him back and I told him that's exactly the biblical pattern. Exactly the biblical pattern. When I'm sitting on a plane and I get introduced to somebody, we're talking with each other, and they find out I'm a preacher, they want to know where I went to seminary school, and I tell them I've never been, and then they act like they're embarrassed. They ask the question. 
Act like they're embarrassed to even ask the question. And how big is your church? And when I tell them that, they're embarrassed to ask the question. I'm not embarrassed to tell them the answer. Okay? We find here that Elisha, his prediction is going to come to pass. These, these four leprous men say this is a day of good tidings. That's why, you, you know, one of the things that, that you would excite you about being in the house of God every Lord's Day is because all week long you've probably hadn't read anything in that category of good tidings. But you come to Bethel Primitive Baptist Church on a Sunday morning, you expect to hear good tidings, you expect to hear uh, glad tidings, you expect to hear the publication, my friends, of peace that Jesus Christ accomplished during his earthly life and ministry. You expect to hear about a victorious Lord, about a risen Lord, a reigning Lord, a returning Lord. You're not going to hear me preach a message of God making somebody savable or reconcilable or justifiable. You're going to hear a message from me that says God has saved you, reconciled you, redeemed you, and justified you. What a difference. That's good news and glad tidings that comes from afar. And brother, just like they could not hold their peace, any minister of the gospel has truly called them God. He is not going to hold his peace because he's got the king's household right in front of him. He said, we're going to go to the king's household. You know, this morning, you're in the king's household. You're a child of the king, my friends, and you're part of his household, and I just can't wait to tell you every opportunity I get, the good news and glad tidings that comes out of Zion. So they came and called to the port of the city and they told him, saying, we came to the camp of the Syrians. Behold, there was no man there. Neither voice of man, but horses tied and asses tied. The tents as they were. This was an unbelievable story, an unbelievable report. And he called the porters and they told it to the king's house within. And the king arose in the night and said to his servants, I'll now show you what the Syrians have done to us. Notice even now the king is skeptical. They know we have been hungry. Therefore, are they all gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we'll catch them alive and get into the city. And then one of the servants answered, how many times do you find in God's word where one of the servants spoke with wisdom, one of the servants spoke up with words that were correct and right and gave information that the king himself, my friends, had overlooked? Let us some take, I pray thee, five of the horse that remain which are left in the city. And let us send and see. And they took therefore two chariot horses. And the king sent after the host of the city and said, Go and see. And they went after them into Jordan. And all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians had cast away in their haste. And the messenger returned and told the king. And the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians. So a measure of fine flour sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Exactly what Elisha said came to pass, my friends, exactly and precisely. It all happened in 24 hours. Now, I'm going to close out to tell you what happened to that officer. He said, when God, if you open up the windows of heaven, these things be. And the king appointed the Lord, that is the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. He sent him down to the gate to have charge. 
And the people in such a mass exodus, people in such a great hurry, the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died as the man of God had said, who spake when the king came down to him. And it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord should make witness in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see with thine eyes, but shalt not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. How God reversed things in 24 hours. How God intervened and supernaturally caused the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and horses and a great host. And the entire Syrian army fled immediately, leaving everything behind. And God ended the famine of bringing judgment on the Syrians. And the man who answered in a sarcastic manner and way was trod upon by the people. And he died just like Elisha, the man of God, said. 